Since March of 2015, uh, me and my family have been in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas based on these little cards. <laughs> this is my work visa, and this is Beth's uh, resident visa. have to carry these things in our wallets constantly. It's a felony, or not a felony, a misdemeanor, not to carry these with us at all times. And uh, one card, my card, allows for employment, and Beth's card does not allow for employment. She cannot work for money in the Bahamas under any circumstance. JD also has one of these resident cards uh, that he carries. These are only good for one year. They've only been issued for one year. So come the end of December, they're no good. So we have to reapply every year. That involves a police check, a full medical, a fee. They're not automatic. The Bahamian government has every right to dictate to me and my family our status in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. We have no right to quibble, argue, debate that status. We are just grateful recipients of what the government of the Bahamas grants to us from the Immigration Department with these visas. We can't establish our own immigration status, and we have to live accordingly. If, if I was to speed driving the church vehicle and be caught, and that were to go on my police record, they may not renew my work visa in January. So we toe the line. We do what we're told. We do so with a grateful heart to live and work here. God himself tells us our immigration status. In the first two verses of 1 Peter, God tells us his immigration policy. He pulls the curtain back, as it were, to show us the governance of heaven's view on the citizenship of Christians, the status we have in immigration as Christians. Similarly to me not telling the Bahamas government what I'm entitled to, we do not tell God what we are entitled to. He tells us. And for our lives in the Bahamas to be peaceful and without Fear, we have to keep the laws of the Bahamas. It's that simple. If we keep the laws of the Bahamas, we don't have to worry. But if we start breaking the laws of the Bahamas, we have a lot to worry about, whether I'm on a work visa or they're on a resident visa. So we humbly receive the immigration status we've received from this land, and we live within the immigration boundaries without questioning it, without debating it, without quibbling over it. Not to do so would be to forfeit the peace of mind we could have if we followed the rules. And I start this whole message with an immigration illustration because the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 pull back the curtain of our Lord's immigration department and listen to what we learn about it. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Apparently, God's immigration department rules that all of our status as Christians is one word, aliens. Every Christian in the sound of my voice is, according to God's immigration ruling, an alien. To get a little understanding of what this means to be an alien, I look at some English versions other than the one I'm reading from to get some help on what does this term alien mean. The ESV calls it elect exiles. The New King James Version, pilgrims. The authorized version, strangers. And this brings us to our first point in these verses this morning, and it is this. As Christians, we are aliens. As Christians, we are aliens. Friends, it isn't just the Christians in the first century who were the first readers of these verses whose God's immigration department deems to be aliens, exiles, pilgrims, and strangers. No, all of us today in 2017, all of us who trust Christ for salvation and follow Christ as Lord, equally, we are aliens, exiles, pilgrims, and strangers. And as the church, universal, the global aggregate of all born-again Christians, whether they be in Australia or South America or Europe or Africa or North America or Asia, we who know Christ as Savior are aliens on earth, spiritual aliens. And do you know why this is? Because Philippians 3.20 states this. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an alien, I'm an alien, because our true citizenship is in heaven, if we're saved. And so you may carry a Bahamian passport, and I may carry a Canadian and American passports, but really, we, in the eyes of heaven, what passport we carry is heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, which makes you an alien in the Bahamas. And it's heaven's viewpoint is the only viewpoint that really counts. And so if heaven issued a passport, it would be yours if you're saved. Because your citizenship is in heaven and your living in the Bahamas is merely on a visa. You know, in a very real sense, in the, in the mind of God, we already live in heaven. Although we're alive and our address might be, our physical address is somewhere here in Nassau, perhaps, we really live in heaven already. For it says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, the following, but God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, watch, and raised us up with him, Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You're already seated in the heavenly places. You say, I, I, have, I just can't see it that way. Well, that's how God sees it. Wouldn't you want to see yourself the way God sees you? And so when I talk to one of you or, and I say, how are you doing? 
And you say, pretty well, under the circumstances. And then I want to say, what are you doing under the circumstances? It's not keep looking up. It's keep looking down from being seated in the heavenly places with your Savior. Now, what does this heaven-issued immigration status imply for you? The second point in our text this morning, as Christians, we are aliens who have been sown. Aliens who have been sown, S-O-W-N, sown. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I'll stop there. Scattered is the word. Translated here, scattered. It can also be translated sown, S-O-W-N. You know, I used to own a lawn maintenance company in Canada. I put myself to the University of Toronto with the proceeds and profits of having a lawn maintenance company that I owned and ran. And inevitably, at the beginning of spring in Canada, my residential customers had problems with their lawns. There were patches in their lawns that were killed brown by salt that they put on their sidewalks to melt ice or by the snow plow they hired to plow their driveways from snow and the snow blade inadvertently took a divot out of the lawn beside the driveway and there was this divot or a place in the lawn that was missing grass. Now, as any businessman, I was interested in providing the best service possible to my clients but at the lowest cost to me. So I faced these problems of patches of lawn that needed replacement. And I came to find out that grass seed or sod could fix the problem. And when I priced it out, grass seed was more cost efficient than sod. Grass seed wasn't cheap, mind you. It was very expensive, but it just wasn't as expensive as sod. So what I would do when I went to my clients who had patches in their lawn that needed to be seeded, I would get the grass seed in my hand and I would sow it with great care because I only wanted to put grass seed on the patch that needed it. I didn't want to waste precious grass seed on the other part of the lawn that was already green. And so sometimes, like in golf, I had to play the wind. I had to know where the wind was blowing, and I played the wind and got the grass seed on the bare patch to the best of my ability. God says that you are seed which he has precisely sown, which he has carefully seeded. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These first readers were living in those places. God had sown them as aliens in those places. But guess what? God has sown us in Nassau, unless you're from a family island or the U.S. or you're visiting today. God has sown us where we live. God has sown us where we live, the physical address, the street and the house. God has sown us where we study in school. God has sown us 
where we transact. God has sown us in our marriages. God has sown us in our friendships. God has sown us in this assembly. And he's done so for purpose. And we're going to see shortly what that involves. As grass seed isn't cheap, neither are any of you. You came at great cost to the Godhead. It took the precious life of the Son of God and his shed blood to make you grass seed. And so God sows you and me carefully. Every seed counts. Let's recap. We've got two points that we've made out of the text, and they are, as Christians, we are aliens who have been sown. As we go a little further in these two verses, we can have a third point. As Christians, we are aliens who have been sown and chosen. Sown and chosen Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. If you're saved, it's because God has chosen you. So it's not merely that God has sown you like the gospel seed, exactly where he wants you to grow for his glory. It is also that God has first chosen you to be his seed before anything ever was existing. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 4a, it says these mind-boggling truths. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Watch. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You've been chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Now we need to think about this because consistently the Bible presents the mysterious doctrine of God's initiation of spiritual salvation such that the individual Christian has been individually chosen by an elect of God. We don't understand how free will and election fits together. I wouldn't pretend I do. They're an antinomy. They're Namas means reality, anti means against. An antinomy is two truths that we see in Scripture that seem to contradict in our puny little minds that don't contradict in the infinite mind of God. And so this electing from before the foundation of the world, this choosing from before the foundation of the world, let me tell you some things about it. This choosing and this electing by God was, one, completed before God's creation. Two, it was based on God's will. Three, it was rooted in God's love. Four, it, it was saturated with God's grace. And five, it was designed for God's glory. But there's more. Additionally, this choosing and electing by God, number one, was apart from our works. Number two, it was beyond our explanations. Number three, it's a reason for our praises. Number four, it's the basis for our blessings. And number five, it's the hope in our trials. That you are an alien who has been sown and chosen 
can be your hope in your trials and in your sufferings. And so again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So we have to unpack what is this foreknowledge that God has. It says that all of this was accordance with his foreknowledge. Well, I'll tell you what God's foreknowledge is not. God's foreknowledge is not God looking down the hallways of human history from the point of creation, seeing who would believe in his son and who would not believe in his son, and then God electing only the ones he could see down the corridor of time would believe in his son. That's not the foreknowledge of God. That makes God reactive and people proactive. But God is always proactive and we are always reactive. Let me tell you what God's foreknowledge is. God's foreknowledge is his predetermination to have a relationship with certain persons. Put another way, God's foreknowledge is his decree to save some before the first humans were even created. Some say, that's unfair. No, let me ask you this. How is it fair that any rebel reprobate sinner, any reprobate rebel sinner could get into God's salvation? That's what's not fair. God has only treated one person worse than he deserved, and it was his son, And one more way of looking at this is that God's foreknowledge is that Christians are foreknown for salvation in the same way that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be the sacrifice for sin. Warren Wearsby is one of my favorites. Warren Wearsby had a way of making the complex simple enough for me to understand. And Warren Wearsby said this of God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. You know, we have this standard poodle Yankee that I tell you about from time to time. He's uh, eight years old now, and he loves the Bahamas. And uh, he's with us here in the parsonage. And when we decided to buy a puppy dog from a Canadian breeder, uh, Yankee happened to be born on the 4th of July. And so we thought, well, we'll call, I said, let's call him Yankee because he's born on the 4th of July and he's going to live with us in Pennsylvania. We're going to drive him down to Pennsylvania. That will be where he lives. But the problem was when I, where we lived in Pennsylvania was New York Yankee fan country. Oh. And they said, oh, you named your dog after the New York Yankees. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I don't like the Yankees. <laughs> but here's how... Yankee came into our family. We bought him for the whole family, but especially to be a therapy dog for our son, Jonathan. And so Beth and Jonathan went up to Canada. I was unable to go. I didn't have vacation. So they went up to Canada, and the breeder put all these adorable little standard poodle puppies in a little confined area, and then she put our son in with them in the pen. And every little puppy had a different colored ribbon around its neck, you know, peach, green, red, blue, etc. 
That's to identify the puppies. And just for some period of time, and it wasn't a short period of time, Beth and the breeder watched the dogs interact with J.D. Who came up to him? Who didn't come up to him? Who came up to him and stayed with him, enjoying him? And who came up to him and left him quite quickly? They watched that. And then Beth and J.D. went away and came back the next day. And the next day, the breeder had removed the puppies that were observed not to be particularly a good fit with J.D. and just left the pen with possible dogs that were in the running, as it were. And after a prolonged period of observation, Yankee, who wasn't called Yankee yet, and had the green ribbon, rose to the top. And then Beth and J.D. picked the green ribbon puppy. Because we wanted to have a personal relationship with that dog. We wanted that dog to fit into our family, to love all of us, and especially our son. And so we chose him not just to have a dog. We chose him to have a personal relationship with a dog. And he's been a great dog. He continues to be a great dog. So these facts that God planned ahead and that God's plan included you, if you're saved, ought to give you joy. Sometimes Yankee just is a purebred dog. He just struts around. And he's been doing that apparently since he was a puppy. And his breeder said, you know, he's been, he knows he's chosen. You other guys are staying here for a while, but I'm going to Pennsylvania. It can give you joy when you pause and think that before anything was created, God knew you, chose you to have a personal relationship with him. And so our big idea is building. The sentence is getting longer, and we come to our fourth point. As Christians, we are aliens who have been sown and chosen and saved if you look at verse 2 again, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. There are some words in that verse that are salvation-specific words. They are vocabulary to do with salvation. They are uniquely pertinent to salvation. What are those words? Sanctifying work and sprinkled with his blood. These words speak to salvation. They are salvation terms. They are salvation concepts. They are salvation component parts. And I hope you remember that the whole package of salvation has three parts. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's the whole package of your salvation. Justification delivers you from the penalty of sin. You'll never have to pay the penalty of any of your sins because Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. That's justification. Deliverance from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is deliverance from the power of sin, and that's ongoing. I battle sin, my sin nature, every day, and so do you. 
This sanctification process where we're delivered from the power of sin is an up and down proposition. Do you know the, the, the do you know my <laughs> do you know what my biggest problem is? Me. My biggest problem is me. Because the work of sanctification of being delivered from the power of sin is still ongoing in my life. Glorification is deliverance being delivered from the presence of sin in heaven. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, justification. Deliverance from the power of sin, sanctification. Deliverance from the presence of sin one day is glorification. We will be delivered from the presence of sin in one of two ways. We see Christ's face through physical death, or we see Christ's face through the rapture of the church. But being delivered from the presence of sin will require us seeing Christ either through death or rapture. That's the whole salvation package. So let me tell you two things to consider. Both have to do with the precious blood of Christ. Number one, Jesus Christ's blood, according to these verses, was sprinkled so that we could be justified and we could be spared the penalty that our sins deserve. That's why Jesus' blood was sprinkled to justify us, to deliver us from the penalty of our sins. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ's blood was also sprinkled to seal the new covenant within which we as true believers live. The last third of our Bible, roughly, is the New Testament or the new covenant. We live under that. We live under a new covenant, a new testament. And we live and operate and serve God within the context and the confines of the new covenant. And Jesus shed his blood to seal us securely into this new covenant within which we as true believers are committed to obey and to follow and to serve the Savior in accordance with the word of God. Now, will you please notice the point of God marvelously working to sow us and to elect us and to save us is that we would obey him? Verses 1 and 2, again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that result, purpose, that you may obey Jesus Christ. That's why he saved you. What he expects of you, that you would obey Jesus Christ. Obedience is what our sowing and choosing and saving Lord God expects from his favored and loved aliens. Obedience. You say, Pastor, obedience? We're just passing through, bound for heaven. Obedience? Yeah, obedience. Or, Pastor, you say obedience? when we're judged to be strange by others who don't know Jesus as Savior and because we're a stranger to this place called earth, obedience? Yes, obedience. Obedience, pastor, in the middle of suffering, in the furnace of trials and hardships, obedience, pastor? Yes, obedience in suffering. If we took the time 
to read the Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews 11, and I won't take that time. But if you take that time to read through the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, you will see it was obedience, 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 obedience against all uh, human thought, obedience against all odds, obedience, 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 that all of these men and women are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. God expects obedience. He expected it in the Old Testament. He expects it in the New Testament. He expects it in the church age. He expects it in this church. He expects it in your life and mine. God expects obedience. So we're working our way through the passage. We're getting along here. We have as our current big idea that we've built to at least thus far. As Christians, we are aliens who have been sown and chosen and saved, so we are obedient. Now, I don't know what each of you may be suffering. I know, I think, to a measure what some of you are suffering because you've told me. But I don't know what all of you are suffering. I don't pretend to know that, but I do know that the majority of us this morning are suffering in some way. Maybe silently, maybe in anonymity. So let me ask myself, and you can listen in, what will help me to endure suffering and to even thrive in it? What will help me to endure my suffering and even to thrive in it? And additionally, a question, what can make it possible for me to obey the Lord even when I am pressured and hurting as an alien in a sin-tainted world? Let me tell you what's going to help me because it's also what's going to help you. See yourself as your Lord does. See yourself as your Lord does. See yourself as an alien who has been sown, chosen, and saved. See yourself as an alien who has been sown, chosen, and saved. Do you know what happens according to our verses when you see yourself in these ways? It's marvelous. You will be given grace and peace in fullest measure. Do you see it there at the end of verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. (laughs) You know, the thing about the Lord, he does everything well, and he does everything completely. And when he says the fullest measure, he means the fullest measure. When we see ourselves the way that 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 are telling us to see ourselves, he will give us grace and peace that will overflow out of our lives. Even when we suffer, there will be grace enough to share with others There will be peace enough to give to others if we see ourselves the way he is describing us in these verses. So that brings us to our sixth point in our building big idea sentence. As Christians, we are aliens who have been sown, chosen, and saved, so we are obedient, and we have all the grace and peace that we need. When our wonderful Lord promises the fullest measure of grace and peace, he means it. And one thing occurs to me at this point. It's something about being an alien 
aliens don't get to vote. I couldn't take this work visa, and Beth couldn't take this resident visa and show up at a poll on May the 10th and vote. Because we don't get a vote. We don't get a vote. We, as aliens on Earth, don't get a vote on God's will as it is presented for us in his word. We don't get a vote as to whether Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord of the Old Testament. He is Lord of the New Testament. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Aliens don't get to vote. We don't get to vote about obeying him. We can't come to a scripture verse and say, yeah, that's in the Bible, but it doesn't apply to me. I don't like those verses. Can't say that. We don't get a vote. Put another way, the commands of the Bible are not suggestions. They're marching orders. And to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ is to not demand a vote about obeying him. It's just our expectation. Show us, show me, Lord, what you want me to do today, and I'm going to do it. Don't show me so I can figure out if I want to do it, and maybe I won't do it. Show me what you want me to do today, and Lord, I'll do it. Jesus spoke to this in the 15th chapter of John. Jesus said that if you would abide in my love, Jesus said, if you would abide in my love, then you will obey my commands. So you can't say, I abide in Jesus' love if there's a command of Christ you are not obeying. Jesus also said in John 15 that obeying his commands is what makes you spiritually fruitful. So you can't say, I'm fruitful spiritually if you're not obeying Jesus' commands. It doesn't go together. It's like this, and I've told you this before. If I took this three-by-five card, and on this side I wrote no, and on this side I wrote Lord, it is a binary situation. It's an on or off situation. You can't circle no and Lord together. That You can't. You only can circle one. What is circled on the three-by-five card of your heart today? No or Lord? If there's anything that Jesus tells you in his word that you're unprepared to do, then you have to circle no. And you can't say he's your Lord. I'm just being blunt. On the other hand, if you circle Lord on the heart of your three-by-five card, then you'll never say no to him. Whatever he asks you to do, you'll say yes. And the choice is ours. To circle Lord is to choose obedience, to choose abiding in Christ's love, and to choose being spiritually fruitful. That is what it means to circle Lord. To circle no means that you will be about disobedience, you will not abide in Christ's love, and you will not be spiritually fruitful. 
To circle the Lord decision sometimes requires risk. On Friday night, there was a precious person who came out to the basketball court who had almost been killed in our parking lot some years ago. She could not be kept away from the basketball court because she circles Lord in her life. There was another sister at the basketball court on Friday night who was part of a jury not too long ago that convicted a man of murder and all of his friends were in the courtroom to see the jury when they did that. They live around there. She came to the basketball court trusting God. On the three by five of your heart, what is circled? No or yes. Maybe what is circled on the three by five card of your life when you walked in needs to be erased to circle Lord instead. Obedience is what Jesus expects. My parents used to say to us kids, don't tell us that you love us. Show us that you love us. And Jesus says the way we show him that we love him is we obey him as Lord. That's how we abide in his love, and that's how we bear spiritual fruit. May we say with Thomas, formerly the doubter, to look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. That is my prayer for our congregation. Would you stand with me, please? There is a lovely um, book called The Valley of Vision. It is a compilation of Puritan prayers that often enhance my devotional time with the Lord. I want to close with a Puritan prayer that I think fits. Let us pray. Lord of the cloud and fire, I am a stranger with a stranger's indifference. My hands hold a pilgrim's staff. My march is Zionward. My eyes are toward the coming of the Lord. My heart is in thy hands without reserve. Thou hast created it, redeemed it, renewed it, captured it, conquered it. Keep it from every opposing foe. Crush in it every rebel lust. Mortify every treacherous passion. Annihilate every earth-born desire. Amen.